0: I enjoy doing question-and-answer sessions about the faith, and in a couple of these sessions over the course of my ministry, I have been asked, usually by youth groups, what it would mean for Christianity if we discovered intelligent life on another planet. It seems like a silly question, speculating about aliens, but it is a question that Christianity has already essentially had to answer twice in its history, and one that tells us a lot about the epiphany. It is a question of similarities and differences. In reality, most of us do not care about amoebas or prokaryotes in distant space, if that is all that there is. These are too different from us to matter much. Instead, what really intrigues us is the idea that there might be something else, someone else out there who could understand us, but who is not us. Someone who expresses our same rationality, but without any of our history, culture, or even genetics. Someone who is profoundly different while also being profoundly the same. Profoundly different, while also profoundly the same. We actually experience this type of relationship every day in the relationship between men and women. We have just become too accustomed to it to realize that it is special. Every culture and every era of humanity, except maybe our own, has taken for granted that men and women are profoundly different from each other, in ways that are part of the very fabric of who we are. Men are not women, and women are not men. And yet, we are both perfectly human. Men are not more human than women, and women are not more human than men. We are two irreducible expressions of the same human nature. The struggle in this sort of relationship is to determine whether our differences or our similarities matter more at any given moment. And this has been the struggle since we were kicked out of Eden. Previous eras may have emphasized the differences too strongly, while the current era seems to pretend like there are no differences at all. Either way, like with extraterrestrials, we are fascinated by that which is both profoundly different and profoundly the same. Well, like I said, Christianity has twice been forced to contend with this question of how to treat groups of people who are both profoundly different and profoundly the same. The second of these encounters was between the European colonizers and the native peoples of the Americas. In this encounter, a civilization which had just invented the printing press met with peoples who were on the cusp of the Bronze Age and who still practiced human sacrifice. Faced with a chasm of nearly two millennia of technological development, it's not necessarily surprising that the Europeans debated the equality of these newly encountered peoples, wondering if such great a difference indicated that they were dealing with two levels of humanity. Blessedly and rightly, thanks in large part to the advocacy of Dominican friar Bartolomé de las Casas, within a generation of Columbus, both the papacy and the Spanish crown had declared that the native peoples were in fact equally human and deserving of rights and protections, even if these declarations were spottily enforced on the frontier. Nevertheless, this encounter between Europeans and Americans, Native Americans, is a good example of how two cultures, which are profoundly different, struggle to determine whether it is primarily their differences or their similarities that define their relationship. I say all of this about men and women and about the conquest of the Americas, because it is the only way we can really understand the acceptance of the Gentiles into the plan of salvation, which the Epiphany is all about. A Gentile is a term for a non-Jewish person, and what to do with these non-Jews was one of the most vexing problems in the first generation of Christianity. After all, God specifically singled out the Jews to be his chosen people, And Jesus the Messiah ministered almost exclusively to the Jews. So it seems a fair assumption to conclude that God's plan of salvation was a plan to save the Jews. But did Jesus' saving act on the cross end there? Or was there some way in which this salvation was also being offered to the Gentiles? Given that every single one of us here is a Gentile Christian, the answer seems obvious to us now. But it was not so obvious to the early church. This is why St. Paul had to insist in our second reading today that he knows about the salvation of the Gentiles through revelation, through the revelation of God himself. He had to claim the authority of God in order to make that statement. And even though all of the apostles accepted this truth that the Gentiles can share in the salvation of Jesus, not everyone did. St. Paul continuously complains in his letters about Judaizers, or groups of so-called Christians going around to the newly formed Gentile churches, telling them that they had to submit to the Jewish laws before they could become full Christians. This is why St. Paul is so direct and clear in our second reading, something that is not always true of him, when he says, The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and co-partners in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. We don't realize it now, but this was a revolutionary statement which turned the entire self-understanding of Judaism on its head. In our first reading, Isaiah prophesied that the riches of all the nations would be poured out upon Jerusalem, a prophecy which the Jews who followed this prophecy believed to indicate their dominion and superiority over the surrounding nations after centuries of subjugation to these nations. But rather than have the Gentiles be subservient, they are welcomed into Christianity as co-heirs to the Jews, equally blessed by Christ Jesus through the gospel. They fulfill this prophecy. They pour their wealth on Jerusalem, not as vassals, but as co-partners. The Magi, the ones who bring the gold and frankincense, serve as the first of many signs that the Messiah, though from the Jews, is a gift to all peoples. Again, revolutionary. Whereas the relationship between Jews and Gentiles had previously been marked by their profound differences, those differences now fall away in favor of a shared humanity, equally saved by Jesus the Messiah. Which brings us all the way back to the question of aliens. Again, an instructive and interesting question. It is possible that someday we will encounter other non-human rational beings, and in that moment we will have to ask ourselves the question, of whether the salvation of Christ applies to them, too. We may no longer be able to rely on a shared humanity, but we might be able to speak of a shared rationality, a shared imago dei, or image of God, which allows these new beings to receive the salvation brought by Jesus Christ. We may even find a reason to believe that God had been preparing them for this salvation all along. Again, this could seem like a silly speculation, but this is exactly what it felt like when the Jewish Christians were asking themselves if even a Gentile could be saved, or when the Spanish missionaries were wondering if the natives could receive the gospel. Ultimately, the message of the Epiphany is simple. The salvation of God is inclusive, not exclusive. Though he worked first through the Jews, God's plan was always the salvation of all peoples through his son Jesus. Man or woman, Jew or Gentile, old world or new world, it doesn't matter. Whatever our profound differences may be, salvation is offered to all, and it is this shared membership in the body of Christ. In the community of the redeemed, that is the only thing that matters in the end.